our topic of loving your neighbor, loving your enemies. And uh, I'm personally anticipating hearing this message. Uh, I personally am uh, fearful of reading these scriptures, which can be very indicting as one who struggles with forgiveness. But that's why we take our burdens to the Lord. So with that, let us um, follow along in the passages that are in your bulletin, starting with Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. 1 Peter three thirteen through 17 Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer righteousness for righteousness' sake... You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you who, who may know already, I'm going to just say it again, that um, I am out for about uh, five or six weeks. Um, and so for the month of June, I'm going to take a much-needed uh, break. And so today, we finish our sermon series on loving your neighbor. And um, we have just touch the surface on this. There are so many angles at this, so I pray that in your personal devotion time and as you read through the scripture, you see the many facets involved with loving your neighbor. And I hope that this series has been a good beginning point for this transformation and challenge in your lives that happens every day in a number of ways. But we continue in what is probably the hardest of all commands that God gives you in loving your neighbor. Namely, 
Loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. And what do we mean by enemy? Those who have been and possibly will be, possibly be hostile or harmful towards you. People who have backstabbed and gossiped and misused your name. People who are looking to take an opportunity to what? Take, an advantage, take advantage of you and what you have. People who despise your faith and want to take your God down a few notches. People who have used and misused your friendship and kinship. Yep. Family members, right? That's parents and spouses and children and brothers and sisters and in-laws who have abused or neglected you or broken promises and, and done wrong in the trusted roles they play in your lives. Jesus says, love those folks. And oh, how there have been times especially when I'm in the middle of a dispute or heated engagement, when, like you all have experienced, when you know you are right and they are wrong, when the situation seems unsurvivable, that you want to give them what? A taste of their own medicine. That'll teach them. Or give them a piece of your mind, right? That way they'll know better. But instead, according to what we read in Scripture, the Lord tells Christians to love their enemies, not by giving them a taste of their own medicine, but giving them a taste of God's own medicine. And not a piece of their own mind, but a piece of what God has given them. How do you love your enemies? Give them a taste of God's own medicine and a piece of what God has given you. Jesus tells his disciples in the beginning of this Matthew passage, in the 38th verse of this Matthew passage, this. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, Jesus apparently, in their, they list, in their, to his listeners, is giving what sounds like a new law of retaliation and revenge. He speaks of what the, what the common rule was back then in verse 38, right? He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was a common rule back then. In other words, if they do it to you, you can do it back to them. This law of the streets was not the biblical law, however, though it had somehow crept into its thinking like it has that of us Christians today. Right? Most of us, like Jesus' listeners back then, have suffered from so much injustice. We've suffered so much pain at the hands of others while at the same time not receive any help from anyone else but ourselves in this mean world that we have shook off. We've kind of recast, we've redacted, we've redefined what Jesus is talking about. 
Why? Because there is no way we can or going to let anybody run over us, right? There is no way I'm going to let anyone talk to me, my husband and my children like that. I'm going to keep it real, right? You ever seen those comic episodes from David Chappelle? When keeping it real goes wrong? <laughs> anyway, real funny, not for the kids, but funny. But our desire to keep it real has somewhere gone wrong in Christianity. Now, let's not get it twisted. I don't believe Jesus is saying let's, let's not keep it real or let's not have justice or, for, or that Christianity is about being dehumanized, demeaned, or disrespected just out of general principle. But he is saying that we shouldn't return evil for evil. So when they slap you, proverbially, with, 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 with disrespect or sin, in fact, getting slapped was the highest degree of disrespect in that time, don't slap back. When they sue you for your stuff, right? And, and back then, the one thing you couldn't take from a person, no matter how much money they owed, was their cloak. You could take their, their outer robe, you could take their car, they didn't have cars, you could take their horse, their mule, but you had to leave people with one thing, the cloak, so they could sleep in the street and have something to cover them. He's saying if someone takes your last bit of something out of greed, don't look to take it back in the same way, right? When they oppress you, don't oppress back. When they look for personal advantage, don't look for personal advantage back. Don't give them a taste of your own medicine. Give them a taste of God's own medicine, which means refusing to let them get off easily while at the same time not going off on them easily. I mean, when we look at All the examples here given by Jesus, what is clear to me is that you are not, hear me, you are not letting the person who is your enemy go or get off easily. In fact, Jesus says this. He says this in verse 38, if I can turn to it. He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Hmm. That there is this call by Jesus to engage the evil person for their own good, but in a way that could cost you more attack or more taking from them. Another chance for them to act like an enemy. And we'll come back to that because there are all sorts of misuse of that kind of thinking without explanation. But Jesus is saying, engage your enemy's evil. Hold them accountable for the evil towards you. But do not make them pay that account by being mistreated or treated meanly or disrespectfully by you like they've treated you. But by all means, don't let them off the hook for their evil behavior towards you, which means you are essentially offering them another chance, another cheek, another cloak, your last nerve, right? Another month or year to get it right, where you could come out looking, I said, looking like a fool, another crazy risk on this person. Now, I want to make sure that you see 
that it may not be the same cheek you're offering, right? Or the same cloak that they have taken. It's another cloak or the same one-mile walk. I say this because this is not a call for us to necessarily keep ourselves in a position or same position of receiving abuse and disrespect. I'm going to have to walk a thin line here. This is about a repositioning to do what is godly towards someone ungodly acting. For example, this is not to be used in domestic abuse situations where if you're sleeping with or married to the enemy, or if you're being bullied to just get, it's not calling to you to just get abused or beat down or killed. No, this is saying don't abuse or kill back or disrespect back, but find a way, a different way possibly to engage this person for good, to not run from them, but hold them accountable for messing with you or doing wrong. You must engage them in their evil, hold them to it and to you and before God in some way to the violation, but not holding them to be burned by the same fire and cruelty that you were burned or hurt with. It may mean turning away the first cheek from getting slapped after getting slapped and offering another way for them to see you and themselves as human. But the Bible is saying that both and the second attempt at offering mercy instead of pain and love instead of hatred may cause them and free them to hate again or to act evilly again or to reject your offer again or to reject your call for them to repent again or to reject your desire for them to confess again. The Bible is saying engage them in a way where they may have an opportunity to do Right or wrong? Maybe not in the same situation. Maybe not in the same relationship. Maybe not in damaging reach of you physically, mentally, emotionally. Jesus even says what? You can pray for those who persecute you. You don't have to be all up with them, but you can pray for them. Maybe it's an offer to them to confess or to repent or or, or you send some folk to to talk to them or, or to accept your freedom from the bad relationship with them. But still, do not return nasty for nasty and hate for hate, but maybe mercy for meanness and justice for injustice and hope that they don't have for themselves for hate. Copy this offline. Just in case stuff go public, I don't want them like, hey, you plagiarized something. Just easier. They wrote it so well. I could have written it better, but it's good. On February 1st, 1960, at 430 PM, four students from North Carolina A&T University sat down at lunch counter inside the Woolworth store at 132 South Elm Street in Greensboro, North Carolina, right up the world. The men, later known as the A&T Four, or the Greensboro Four, went to Woolworth store, bought toothpaste and other products from a desegregated counter at the store with no problems, and then were refused service from the segregated lunch counter at the same store. 
Following store policy, the lunch counter staff refused to serve the African-American men at the whites-only counter, and the store's manager asked them to leave. The four university freshmen, Joseph McNeil, Franklin McCain, Ezell Blair Jr., later known as Jabrell Gazan, and David Richmond, stayed until the store closed. The next day, more than 20 African-American students who had been recruited from other campus groups came to the store to join the sit-in. Students from Bennett College, a college for African-American women in Greensboro, joined the protest. White customers heckled the black students who read books and studied to keep busy. The lunch counter staff continued to refuse service. Newspaper reporters and a TV videographer videographer covered the second day of the peaceful demonstration, and others in the community learned of the protest. On the third day, more than 60 people came to the Woolworth store. A statement issued by Woolworth National Headquarters said the company would abide by local custom and maintain its segregated policy. More than 300 people took part on the fourth day. Organizers agreed to spread the sit-in protest to include the lunch counter at Greensboro's Crest store. As early as one week after the Greensboro sit-in had begun, students in other North Carolina towns launched their own sit-ins. Demonstrations spread to towns near Greensboro, including Winston-Salem, Durham, Raleigh, and Charlotte. Out-of-state towns like Lexington, Kentucky also saw protests. Despite sometimes hearing this violent reaction to the sit-ins, these demonstrations eventually led to positive results. For example, the sit-ins received significant media and government attention. You know what I can't help but recognize in this situation? Every wave... Every day of sit-in was like offering another cheek to be slapped. It was almost like day one, I'm mistreated, but day two, I'm offering another cloak to be taken, another mile to walk, another opportunity for change for those who came to do violence and evil as the enemies of the human race, but it wasn't evil for evil. And it changed things. It is so important to know where this all comes from. Because this did not come from Gandhi or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or even the A and T4. This is about God himself. In fact, as what verse 46 says, paying close attention to verse 48 in the Matthew passage, look at 46 going forward. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as who? Your heavenly Father is perfect. And then in the Luke account, it says to be merciful. Like your God is merciful. So, so, so it's saying, be merciful like your God is merciful. Love your enemies like God loves his enemies. To engage sinful humankind like God has engaged them. It makes me think about the garden back in Genesis, right? After God gave Adam and Eve everything they could ever want and even gave them a chance to show love and worship back to him by walking past the tree of knowledge of good and evil and not eating of it, they tempted, ate, 
and proverbially slapped God in his divine mouth, despising his words and his face in their matters, and then took his creation and made their own coats, and then borrowed and stole away in his garden, away from him, taking advantage of its ability to hide them, and then forced God to try to find them. And the Bible says that God did not let them off easily, but that he called them out called out to them. He went the extra mile and tracked them down. It did not slap them out of existence. It didn't shut down their dignity or snatch their clothing off and make them stand in naked shame. And he didn't make them fix what they had broken with hard work. And he didn't put them in a high interest moral chokehold. The scripture says he confronted them. He held them accountable for their actions of wrong, but he clothed them, his new enemies, with his own hands and then promised them a road, the freedom, the way, mercy to not do more evil, but to the supernatural possibility of love and good and redemption. I don't know who and what you are called to engage and hold on to as your enemy. I don't underestimate the complications of the situation. I've been pastoring this church for over 10 years now. I can say that statement. I've been pastoring this church for over 10 years now. Every situation is complicated. And I know what you think, Pastor Brown, you don't know my situation. This person needs to learn for their own good. Please let me cuss them out too. You know what I want to say? Yes, do it. When I hear some situations, I want to slap them for you. I want to join in. Let's go to jail together. We got a few lawyers. We'll get out. I never done anything else wrong. That's what the guy who's been in there for five years said. It's complicated. It's no doubt. Enemies are always complicated. That's why when Jesus said it, folk were like, what is wrong with this man? He don't understand what he's talking about. What's he going to do, change the world or something? Oh, maybe. But the Lord is calling us to give them our attention, our enemies, our time, even if for our own and their safety, not in the same legal or geographical relationship. I'm not calling you to go over to somebody who's beat you up before and get beat up again. I'm not saying that. But nevertheless, it is not neglect and suffering we are offering. We are not leaving them out to dry or die, but we are doing what it takes for them not to suffer what we may have at their hands. And this is hard. It's hard because of our misunderstanding of justice. Justice is not that they must experience and feel what you did at their hands. That is not justice. Justice is right standing with the person, with the law and offense. Now get this. The supernatural means God has given Christians 
to lead people to a sense of right standing and justice is mercy. See, mercy is the door. It's giving an opportunity for them to get in that right, just standing. And I'm not trying to say there shouldn't be an information exchange. What you're doing is wrong, and here is why. I might not be able to tell you, but I'm sending my friend to tell you. You know, I I want you to know. I don't want to leave you ignorant. I don't want to leave you out there. And I've heard it said on some of these talk shows. You've heard it. Kill them with kindness. That's still evil because you want to kill somebody with kindness. Stab them with love. I've heard it said, you know, don't do it like them or you'll become like them. You need to free yourself with forgiveness. Man, I, I turn on talk shows and they talking about forgiveness without Jesus. And I'm like, whoa. There's no scapegoat. Where's forgiveness going? Up in the sky somewhere. Why would you do that to yourself? You've really been offended and you're going to forgive and it's going to go nowhere? Like, there's no justice in your forgiveness? Oh, I just forgive. Really? You think that lowly about yourself? You really think you weren't mistreated or, you were mis- or the mistreatment wasn't real enough that you could just throw the offense up in the air? Oh, I just forgive and I just love. It's a lie. It's not true. This is not about that. This is not not about a need to free yourself or or to kill them with kindness or that your power against them is forgiveness. That's all a little sub-Christian, right? You hear that stuff? It is not Christianity. When people talk about the power of forgiveness and there is no power of redemption or any cross anywhere. It does not exist. It's a lie. Run from that. Because guess what? That still isn't it. It's being like the Lord, Lord, who offered mercy so that the other person can find repentance. Loving your enemy is and has never been about yourself or your self-perseverance, but mercy, grace, and love for the other person. See, that's what makes it hard is all this newfangled stuff about, hey, the power of forgiveness and killing with kindness. And, you know, what you got to really do is um, free yourself and blah, blah, blah. And it's all self-focused. And let me tell you what happens with that. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. It's just not true. It's not about you. This is the hardest thing. If you've been mistreated, it's not about you, this passage is saying. It's through you for your enemy. Nine times out of ten, any dealings I have with anybody who doesn't like me, it's about me being free of the bad feelings. That's not what the scripture is saying. It's harder than that. This is about them possibly being freed. Because you're showing mercy. I don't like it one bit in my flesh. I don't like it. 
But that's what Jesus is saying. And that's why his listeners today, I mean, back then, a lot of his disciples took off. They're, 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 hey, I thought dude was, was, you know, on the one. No, he wasn't. He, he about loving people for them and not yourself. What? Let's, let's roll, y'all. Let's go to this Greek philosopher down the road. He's telling the truth. He's saying, hey, look, take folk out. Do it for yourself. Free for yourself. You know, th- that dude, that's the right dude. And guess what? He probably had a bigger following than Jesus. And it makes us ask the question of ourselves, what and who do you really believe brings redemption and healing to this world? Because just watching out for number one against someone who's done you wrong, it declares you don't really believe there's redemption for folk who are evil. <laughs> this is not only about giving your enemies a taste of God's medicine, but also giving them a piece of what God has given you. Look at verse 43 through 45 in the Matthew passage again. And it says this, You have heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons and sons of their Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the, on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And then let's jump over to, am I supposed to do this? Yeah, let's jump over to our Peter passage. Got to make sure, because sometimes our mind gets ahead of what we're supposed to do. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling, I mean reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Then let's jump to verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteous sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, through God, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In verse 45, Matthew, in Matthew, it talks about being sons of your father who is in heaven. And then in Peter, it talks about giving a hope for the reason that's in you. In other words, love your enemy like and with what God has loved you with. I like that passage when it says, the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust and evil and the good it means that there's this group of human beings that are all the same. And out of this group of human beings, God showed mercy to them. No one was actually better in and of themselves, right? Which means this. You believers live with a grateful story that should tell you that God could have slapped you and shut you out and let you get what you deserve even now because you know a lot and you still do things like you're God's enemy and God's your enemy, which would have been his much-deserved wrath and disappointment and distance you from anything good of his. And yet, the scripture says, he turned the other cheek to you in Jesus. 
He went the extra mile and he came to earth and he died for your sins. Jesus did take the slap you deserved. In fact, your your sin slapped God on the cross and then as he stretched there naked, it was you who took his last stitch of respect so you could stand clothed in righteousness before God. It was Jesus who begged God for you when you couldn't say anything good enough for God to accept you. And the Bible tells us that Jesus made himself a prayer for sinners and to continue to pray for our sinners who can't pray for the depth of sin we actually have. That like verse 45 says, with the sun and the rain, we were no better than any one of our enemies before God. But God decided in his mercy to not give us a taste of our own medicine or our deserved medicine, but let Jesus take our poison potion so that we could taste his goodness and his redemption and his life change. That is your testimony and that is your story. If you didn't know it, now you know it. And as we go to treat and respond to others of those, as verse 48 in Matthew says, it implies those perf- as those perfected and be perfected by God in Christ, those declared righteous by the mercy of God, once enemies and potential enemies of God, now his children, how would and could you treat the world of enemies to you and God himself? How do you treat them? Like God treated you. Like God handles you, you, like someone treated, like, like someone treated like God has treated and still treats you with mercy, with patience and sacrifice. You know why in contrast the world is living defensive and in an arms race with each other, protecting and throwing and dropping bombs on each other, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? Because supposedly, unlike Christians, they have not known mercy. Many of them have only known neglect and rejection and fear and fighting and watching out for number one and taking advantage. They have been abused and chewed up and spit out or kept ignorant about the love of God. And guess what? The gospel tells us that the solution to anything but condemnation The love and mercy of God for you. Here's what's funny. Christians can be the most strident, snippy, mean, quick, sharp-tongued, time and family protecting, legalistic and judgmental, vengeful. We walk around with a moral hammer ready to take anybody out who steps out of line. People fear Christians. You know better. You know the gentle and patient and respectful voice of redemption in your Savior. Do you remember how he talks to you? Do you remember how he spoke to you when you were in that sin? Do you remember how kind Christ was to you when he could have let you die in condemnation or suffer in your guilt and shame? Then why don't we do it to others? 
Why do we believe there's some other way for them to be made right outside of mercy to those who don't know how to act merciful themselves? Your tongue and hands and prayers should speak and do and plead and engage with a heart and manner that says and believes that it was by grace and mercy that you are and will no longer be his enemy. But not just no longer his enemy, but an enemy who's become God's family. Let's look at this, close with this, about to wrap up here. Verse 43 says, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. I'm going to stop right there. When Jesus talks about you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, he's not talking to you as someone who doesn't know any better. He's talking to you as somebody who sees how he is part of the Godhead believes that he has come to earth for what reason? To love those who are his enemies. All you people I'm talking to, Jesus said, I'm a perfect God. I'm standing here on earth. Why am I here? To love you who are enemies of my holiness, who are offensive to my goodness, who want to persecute me, and even the ones who are nice and my friends and my followers, you really don't like me enough because I'm not going to take on the Roman government, and I'm not going to give you a right hand in the kingdom, and I'm not going to make you rich. I come to love you who are not going to like me all the time. But that's how you're going to become sons and daughters of God. Now get this, not just friends of God, children of God. Now there's some people that no matter how bad they act, you can't hate your children. Now I'm sure there's some situations. It's complicated, Pastor Brown. Yes, I know. But you get the point. The other day I went to the pool with our boys and Harrison recognized a kid from his class and he went over to, and he went over to say hello. He's like, there's a kid from my school, Dad. I'm like, go say hi to him. And the boy looked at Harrison. Harrison, hey. And the boy just kept walking. I'm like, he has ears, I see him. Now, I don't know, he, he all right? I'm like, Harrison, he, he, he okay? Like, he normal? What's wrong with him? He was like, he's in my class. Oh. So he is a magnet student. So he okay. He understands the language okay. So he, you went over there and you said hi to him. And he kept walking. Oh, my gosh. I was so angry. And my son looking like a fool. Hey, and the guy. Walking all cool. I wanted to take him in the pool and hold him under for a while. Y'all think I'm joking. I didn't even have a bathing suit. I was about to get wet. I bet he'd say hello then. He, and I, I was just so upset. I, Kelly even said out loud to the kid, you know Harrison? And the kind of kid kind of nods like a real... And Kelly was like, he, he, I just wondered because you're acting kind of stink in your, re, your response. And I'm like, oh, Lord. And then the whole rest of the time at the pool, it was adult swim. I'm looking at that side of the pool at that kid. 
struggling internally with what I was going to do to get that kid straight because even now my heart is angry and hurt for my son. But we had a good talk with him afterwards. He knew we hated what the kids did to him and we appreciated that he did not push the kid in the water. But here's the point. Oh, gosh, I got to hurry up. But I fear for my kids because they are nice, meaning they are pretty non-confrontational. And I must teach them to stand up for themselves as an exercise of their faith in this sense, that they need to believe and live believing that they're made in the image and likeness of God and loved by God in us, that therefore fear or fear of rejection or losing a so-called good friend or having a desire to be accepted and so-called love would let themselves be trampled on and mistreated for those reasons is wrong and sinful too. And in that way would make themselves and who God has made them and called them to be, to be the enemy instead of the person mistreating them. And when they let themselves become the enemy, they can wrongly accept being mistreated as okay because they think they are junk or not worth anything. Our Heavenly Father, like I do for my son, wants us to know and embrace the same grounding to all of this as part of our giving the world a piece of what God has given his people, a sense of love and worth that the world doesn't have. This passage is not about not loving yourself or hating yourself, rather, or loving something or wanting something so badly that you would just put yourself out there because that would just lead to hating and eventually hurting your enemy or yourself or your God one day. You see, the only way you don't return evil for evil to give mercy and love for hatred, even for yourselves, is if you have a father, a family who's got more than your back but got your heart. You see, the power and ability to not fight evil with evil and offer mercy to know that God is is in this, that God's got you and loves you, right? I was a pretty gentle kid. I didn't get into a lot of fights, so you pushed me. Then your nose got bloodied. Or I got beat. I got beat up a couple times. But I remember I had a bus stop, and a bully was at the bus stop. Scott. He's bigger than everybody else. You know me. Hey, Scott, what's going on? You know, just just regular old kid from round away. I'm not, I'm not trying to start nothing. But he was mean, you know? And I remember my dad would come by in the car as I was waiting for the bus stop. I left my lunch money. Daddy, I left my lunch money. And then I'd get back to the bus stop. Daddy, they tease me. Look, look how you sound. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Like something's wrong with me. I let it go. I kept going. My, I told my dad, this, guy, this kid's bothering me on the bus, blah, blah. What did you do? Did you go near him? Did you act like a clown? Did you try to get attention in the wrong? Just, just leave him alone and sit there. Still, daddy, he's bothering me. I remember my dad said, we're going to go see his daddy. And we walked over to his house. And I walked in there. And boy, Scott looked like he was three feet tall next to his dad. But then I saw something. I think he was being bullied by his father. I think his dad was mean to him because of the way I saw his response. When we love our enemies, we bring the love of our father that they don't have to them. 
The reason the world acts the way it acts and the reason you've acted like an enemy of God is because you don't believe anyone really loves you or got your back. You don't believe you can call out to somebody bigger and stronger and better and more perfect than yourself, a daddy. But guess what, children of God? You got a daddy. And he deals with the bullies of this world. But not just confronts them, but confronts their bullies too. This is loving your enemy, giving them a piece of your family and your family secret and your family 